Well, I hope you have your Bibles with you. Matthew 28 is our text, and we are a church that's always going to be preaching from God's Word. So I really want to invite you to get those Bibles out. You follow along with me. You take notes. I'm encouraging you. Write them in your margin. Make sure that what I'm preaching is what God's Word actually says. I want to open up with uh, maybe a little bit of an odd statement to make. Let me explain it. Here's the statement. Nobody knows who actually authored this. But here it is. The church today... Now, hold on. Christian brother and sister, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, then this is you. The church today. This is me. This is us together. The church today is raising a whole generation of mules... They know how to sweat and to work hard, but they don't know how to reproduce themselves. I'm going to read it again. Let me explain it. The church today is raising a whole generation of mules. They know how to sweat. They know how to work hard, but they don't know how to reproduce themselves. Now, here we go. Ready? We're launching this series in discipleship, the greatest job on earth. Disciples learning how to make disciples who know how to make disciples. And let me explain the mules. Mules are hard-working animals. I mean, you know this. They carry supplies, they plow fields, they pull wagons, they transport people. But mules, by the way, a mule is what you get when a horse and a donkey go out on a date. They got to get better pastors here. So it's a product of a horse and a donkey, but mules, they got a major problem. They have a major problem. They are almost always sterile. They cannot reproduce. Each mule is the end of their line. You see, the church today, friends, I'm hoping this can kind of drip in. The church today is full of mules. We've got hard-working Christians. We've got Christians who teach classes, who serve the needs of others, who organize events, they lead life groups, they serve in the worship services. But if they're not reproducing themselves, they're the end of the line. Now you get that, right? If they're not reproducing themselves, if they're not making disciples, listen, who know how to make disciples, then their end is near. The series that we're beginning today is designed to get us on mission, making disciples who know how to make disciples. We've been given the greatest job on earth, Christian brother and sister. So let's learn how to do it and let's get to it. So turn with me, if you haven't yet, Matthew 28. I'm going to read the passage. We're going to read verses 16 through 20, and I want you to follow along with me. And here's what God's word says. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee. To the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, some people call this, in fact, the modern church calls it the Great Commission. Really, nobody in church history, or at least very few in church history, called it the Great Commission. The Great Commission is the Father sending the Son. 
to be a ransom for us. I did not come to be served. I came to serve, Jesus said in Mark 10, and to give my life as a ransom for many. So the great commission is always the mission of Jesus to die on that cross, to bury, to be buried in that grave, and to be raised to life three days later. That's the great commission. This is a great commission, and it is all of our mission. Now listen, this might startle you a little bit, but if you're a Christian, this is your mission. There isn't another mission. There's not a Christian in this room that has a different mission than what Jesus just said. We all have this mission. And you might visit a hundred churches in your life and you might find and you will find a hundred different mission statements in that church. Here's ours. We, uh, we exist to build strong believers in Christ through his word as we follow him into our community. That's our mission statement. That's the verb. That's what we got to do if we're going to see the picture, the vision become a reality. But listen, you might find a hundred different mission statements, but there's only one mission statement. It's to make disciples. It's to baptize them. It's to teach them. That's it. You don't have a different job. I don't have a different job. We do it in different ways. We do it in different capacities. We've got different skill sets, different gifts, different backgrounds, different passions, but they all go to the same mission. It's the greatest job on earth. Let's look at the CEO of this great company. We're going to look at our jobs. We're looking at our job responsibilities. And we're going to look at the promise that goes with it. So let's start with the CEO. Here it is, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now when you read that, and you've read it, I'm sure, a lot of times... What goes on in your mind when you read this? I can tell you what went on in my mind back in 1991. I was called into the director of Bridges Psychiatric Treatment Center because I had been sharing my faith with the people that were coming to that center, the clients. This was not a Christian psychiatric center. It was a residential, 14 children. They lived there sometimes 18 months, and I kept sharing my faith, and the Lord gave me opportunity to lead people to the Lord. And the director heard about it, and I'm wearing Christian t-shirts, I'm bringing my Bible to, to, uh, to work, and the director, Bill Gorman, heard about it, and Bill gave me a memo and said, come see me at 1 o'clock, I forget the time, but come see me at 1 o'clock on this day, and I went in there, and he sat me down and said, Tim, I understand that you're talking to people about your religion. I said, I am. So you can't do that. Now I've got a crisis of faith. Do I want my job? Do I want to obey the Lord? What will I do if I obey the Lord? What will happen to me? Well, what began to drip into my soul was this verse. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to not Bill Gorman, not Tim Ackley, but to Jesus. He is the authority. And if Jesus tells me to go in there and very compassionately and subtly and carefully explain the gospel, then that's what I've got to do. And that's what you have to do. You know, one of my professors at uh, Liberty University used to drill this into all of our heads. Here it is. I'm going to do it to you too. He did it to me. I'm doing it to you. All means all, and that's all that all means. Let's say it together. All means all, and that's all that all means. Here we go. All authority 
and in, in heaven and on earth has been given to me, all of it. Now I want you to think about this, not some of it, now look at me, not the majority of it, not a lot of it. Every single bit of authority that the Father possesses was given to Jesus, His Son. Now, have you ever thought through that? Jesus is about to send His disciples on a mission, and He says, I've got all authority from the Father vested in me to send you. Now, did you catch the wording? Now, look at your text. Let's be in the text together. All authority in heaven and on earth. Do you ever remember hearing that before? In heaven and on earth. You might remember the prayer that Jesus taught us in Matthew 6. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Here it is. On heaven or on, on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I want you to listen to me. Some of you aren't, aren't, aren't paying attention. Get your eyes back on me. This is so important. Now listen, you got to hear this. All authority in heaven and on earth. Why does Jesus use that odd phraseology? I mean, what is willed in heaven? What is a decision made in heaven? Let it be done on earth. That's the power. I mean, this is what Hebrews 2 is getting at. Now in putting everything in subjection to Jesus, God the Father, left nothing outside his control. At the present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. And what, what it's getting at is everything is now coming, and it has indeed come under the authority and the control of Jesus. So at, in, in heaven and on earth. Now listen, this is the, the exciting part of our mission. The exciting part of our mission is this. The work of the kingdom... We call it the kingdom of God. Here it is. Ready? You and I, we weren't always saved. Nobody was born saved. We're all born sinners. Falling short of the glory and the grace of God, right? We're falling short of the glory of God. God selected us. God reached down, gave us the power, the ability to believe. He took us out of the kingdom of the world. He put us in the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is the church. This is the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God is even more than just a local church. It's the universal church. It's the church all over the world, which is bringing God's will from heaven to bear on earth. Do you see what I'm saying? On heaven, in heaven as it is on earth, or on earth as it is in heaven. Listen, the kingdom of God, church, that's you, that's me. We're bringing the will of God through the authority of Jesus to bear on this earth. We're bringing all things under subjection to him. That should be exciting. When you get on mission, you're participating in the great will of God that is birthed in heaven, bringing it into this plane of reality called earth, and we get to see it happen. The Father has given Jesus, his Son, all authority to commission us, to give us a job in his kingdom. Now listen, we're talking about the CEO, that's Jesus. Now I want you to think through this. Jesus doesn't need to go to a heavenly board of directors. He's been given full authority. But even more, Jesus isn't sending us to conquer the world. He's already conquered it. 
Listen, we've got this weird thinking in some of the militant sectors of the church that we've got to conquer the world. Why? The cross. He did it. That's the power of the cross. He's already put all things, the Father, under the feet of the Son. It's conquered. Now we get to participate in the glory of God being seen on earth. The missions of redemption being seen on earth. The will of God coming out and unfolding on this planet. But it's already conquered. Jesus is the Lord of all. He has full authority, which means he has all power. I mean, similarly, none of us, I mean, this is kind of contrary to modern thinking. Listen, not one of you, and certainly not me, decided to make Jesus the Lord of your life. Yet we use this phrase all the time. The day I made Jesus the Lord of my life. What do you mean the day you made Jesus? He's already been the Lord of your life. He is the Lord of your life whether you're a believer or not. There will be a day, the Bible says, that you will bow whether you trust in him or not. Therefore, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, how many? Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is Lord whether you want to make him that or not. Get to listen to what David Platt, author of the book Radical, heavily recommended to you. He wrote this in his commentary on Matthew. He says this, and this is interesting. I could ask the devil, do you believe the Bible is the word of God? And he would say, yes. Well, do you believe Jesus is the son of God? And he'd say, yes. Do you believe Jesus died on the cross, Satan, and rose again? And he would say, yes. Well, do you believe that Jesus is the only way to be saved? And he's going to say yes. Will you commit to live a moral life and come to church and get involved in leadership? And he will exuberantly say yes. But the critical question is, will you repent, Satan, of your sin and surrender your life to Jesus, who is your Lord? And the devil would surely answer Absolutely not. See the difference? That's the power. That's the authority of our CEO. The greatest job on earth is helmed by Jesus who's been given all authority. Now listen, I don't know what's going on in your life. What I do know is that every Christian here is called to make disciples who know how to make disciples. And what I do know, including me too often, is that most of us are mules. We're not doing it. We work hard, but we're not replicating ourselves. We're not bleeding ourselves in to other people. And our line is going to end with us, and we're not getting the gospel around the world. Yet we've got a CEO who has all authority and says, go, and I'm going to give you the power. He says, I've got a job for you to do, and I'm going to give you the ability to do it. And he's not asking, now listen, you better know this, I gotta know this, he's not asking his followers to make disciples and teaching them, he is commanding us. Do you see the difference? You will never have Jesus, if he were to do this, sit down with you and say, you know what, two things, would you please 
start making disciples who know how to make disciples because it's really the only plan I've got. I don't have a plan B. He's never going to ask you to do anything. He has all authority. He will command it, and he has commanded it, and he's never going to say, would you just try your best? Because our best is not going to work. He's going to say, and lo, I am with you always. My grace and my power that the Father has given to me, I'm giving to you. Now get out and let's do it, and we're going to do it together. That's our CEO. But here's the job. Go, therefore, it says, and make disciples of all nations. So what does what Jesus does in this commission, co-with mission, something we do with each other with Jesus, what he does in this commission is he gives a command. Now listen, this is the part where some of you are going to say, okay, nap time. You've got a verbal imperative, that's the command. Boring, I know. And then you've got three participles which are how you participate. So participles are action, participation. So we've got a command and we've got three participles. The command is make disciples. The three participles, boring as you can imagine, are go baptizing and teaching. And we're going to unpack this. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Now listen, I want you to see something. Look at your text while I reread this. Go, therefore, and make converts. Is that what it reads? All right, maybe I didn't do that one very well. Go, therefore, and make Christians. You know there's nowhere in the Bible we're told to make Christians. He says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And you might be wondering, well, what's a disciple? If I'm going to need to learn to do this if I'm being commanded and all authority from the Father has been given to our CEO's son, Jesus, and he's telling me to go out and he's going to do it with me, I better know what it means to make a disciple. Well, the most basic meaning of disciple is a student who's committed to learn from somebody else. That's the most simple meaning. A student or a learner who is committed to learn from somebody else. And a disciple would usually commit to be in a learning relationship with one teacher or school. That's why a lot of you come to me, and you're in a crossroads in your life, and you're, you're listening to every preacher you can, and you're reading every book that you possibly can, and I'm always going to tell you the same thing. Stop listening to all the preachers, stop reading all the books, listen to one preacher you trust, and read the Bible. That's the fastest way to blow the fog out and get in prayer. He's going to give you the way forward. But a disciple would commit to one teacher or one discipleship rabbinical school to learn from. And they would learn by asking, by the rabbi asking questions and the students answering them through instruction, through repetition, through memorization. Listen, if you're discipling somebody, listen, make it alive. Let there be questions and give answers if you've got them or get them to where they can get their answers. Instruct them. Teach them what the Word of God says. Teach them how to know the truth for themselves. Do it over and over and over and don't ever forget memorizing. And in time, that disciple would pass on what he had learned. You hearing this? What he had learned, he would pass on to others. That was the way discipleship is built. Yet somehow, in the modern century, it doesn't work anymore. 
It works. It's just not functioning that way in the church. Now I want you to hear this. Disciples would usually select their teachers. Right? I mean, you chose to come to this church. I didn't recruit any of you. This is all your free accord to come here and to learn and to be part of a church, a fellowship, the kingdom of God on earth. But disciples would select their teachers, but Jesus, he was different. Now hear this. Jesus typically, almost always, chose his disciples. And he asked for a lifelong allegiance. Not learn from me for a while, then I'm going to pass you to the next teacher. Jesus taught for life. And he demanded that his disciples choose him over their families, over their property, over their reputation, over their jobs. So let me sum that up. A disciple is one who's been chosen by God, has placed his or her trust in Jesus Christ, and has committed to follow him in a continual learning that produces obedience. And the job is as big as the world. Look what it says. We are to make disciples of all nations. You want to know what their original Greek says here on this? And if I were you, if I was sitting in the pew and the pastor were about to tell me this, this is where I get my pen and I make a little mark in my Bible's margin. The phrase of all nations in the original Greek doesn't mean nations or countries. It means tribes, families, clans, peoples. It's what we call people groups today. In the Old Testament, they were the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Israelites, etc. Today, now listen, I want you to hear this. Today, our world, all the globe, consists of 11,000 people groups. Did you know that? 11,000 people groups. More than 11,000. And they each, each people group shares a, a similar language, a common heritage, a, a, a similar culture. So Jesus says, make disciples of all nations. It's not just a command to go out and make as many disciples as possible. Now, did you hear what I just said? This is where we get it off. This is where we're getting it wrong. It doesn't mean get out of here tonight and you just got to go make disciples as fast as you can and churn them out like a factory. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is strategically, intentionally, specifically, make disciples among every people group in the world. You know what? In 2013, last year, listen, this is 2014. This is modern age. In 2013, more than 6,000 people groups has never, have never been reached by the gospel. Can you imagine that? There's 11,000 people groups, a little more than that, on our planet. 6,000 of them a year ago have never been reached by the gospel. It's because the church is a bunch of mules. We all have the mule mindset. But listen to the force of the command to get the gospel to every people group. Matthew 24, verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world, the whole world, as a testimony to all. That word means people groups. Now listen. Look at the, look at the screens. And then the end will come. 
When will the end come? Just read it simply. When will the end come? When Jesus brings redemptive history to a close. When's that going to come? When the gospel is proclaimed through the whole world as a testimony to every people group. 6,000 people groups have not yet been reached by the gospel out of over 11,000. The end's not coming until the gospel gets to the world. How will that gospel reach around the globe? Now listen, here's the answer. By the church learning to make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey Christ to get out there and make disciples. And the, the result will be seen one day in heaven, Revelation 7, 9. Listen, this is why God wants the gospel to every people group. Oh, look what's going to happen. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one can, can number. This is heaven. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, God wants redeemed people from every people group. He loves everybody. And they're standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Go back and see what it says. From every, not most, not 6,000 out of 11, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, there are people that are going to be in heaven from every single people group because the church stopped being mules and started making disciples who knew how to make disciples. That's how it's going to work. And Mark tells us in his version of this, this commission how it's going to occur. He said to them, Jesus said to them, go into all the world, all the world. All means all, and that's all that all means. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. But remember those three participles that we all love to talk about? Going, baptizing, teaching. Listen, they, those three, tell us how we are to do our job. How do you make disciples? Well, here's your answer. You got to go, you got to baptize, and you got to teach. And more than just the pastoral staff has to do it. Every single Christian in the church has to learn. So how do you do it? Well, number three, the, the job responsibilities. Go is the first one. That's actually a participle. That means how you participate with God, with Jesus. Go, it's better translated this. You ready? Having gone. This is where I would write it in your Bibles. Because go is not a good translation. Having gone is a good translation. Therefore, having gone is what Jesus has said. In other words, the authority, therefore, always tells you to look at what went before you, okay? Therefore means what, take a look at what was there before. So when you see therefore, you gotta go back. You gotta go, well, what did Jesus just say? He said, all authority from the Father has been given to me. Therefore, go. Therefore, having gone. The authority of Christ has filled you with courage and confidence and determination. And you've gotten on mission to take up the greatest job on earth that Jesus Christ has given to you. The first action item, you got to get on mission. you got, you got to get moving. Jesus assumes, listen, you've already gone. 
But there's a lot of Christians that aren't going. They get to church, but they're not moving. They're not making disciples. They're, they're mules. They got to get out of mules and become purebred breeds and horses and donkeys and do the work of the gospel, which is the mission of making disciples. Doesn't mean you quit your job. Why would you quit your job? That's your mission field. Therefore, having gone, having gone into that job, having gone into that neighborhood, having gone into that school and into that sports team and into that hobby group, listen, this is your mission field. While you're in there, make disciples baptizing and teaching them. You go across that street to help your neighbor. Listen, do you know the neighbors across the street? This is hugely convicting to Denise and I. But as you go across the street to help your neighbor or to your job or to your sports or your school, listen, you got to have the confidence. God has given authority to Jesus, all of it, and Jesus gave you a job and he gave you a commission. Now get out and make disciples. You've got all the power of God behind you. And he's not coming back until the gospel makes it into every people group because he wants people from every people group in heaven. And he's going to get it. Well, then you got to baptize. Look what it says. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And some of you might be thinking, well, man, what do I got to do? I got to keep running down to the Delaware or to a pool or get a baptismal tank? Water baptism doesn't save anybody. doesn't give anybody salvation. But it was to be done as close to salvation as possible. Listen, if you got saved five years ago... And you've not been baptized, you can't possibly think that you're in the will of God. That was an aberration. That was just not the way the Christians functioned in the early church. It is in the modern church. We're trying to correct that in this church. But baptism doesn't save anybody, but it was done as closely to salvation as possible. And it's where a Christian publicly identifies with Jesus Christ and the church. Did you know it's both? Listen, when you follow Jesus in baptism, you're identifying with the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, and you're identifying with the church who now comes around you to help you grow in your faith. It means you're dead to the power of sin. That's what it signifies, that the old you is gone, and you cannot return to it. You are buried. You can't go back across the chasm of death, back to your old nature. You've got a new creation. It is being powered by the Spirit of God so that you can live a life to give glory to God. And in the first century, baptism, guess what? It often brought martyrdom. Listen, if you're going to come out and you're going to identify with Jesus in a hostile Roman city, it almost always meant you're going to lose your home, you might get killed, you're definitely going to suffer because you're now with the pagans, the anti-Greek Roman religion. You're with the Christians. That was a major decision to be baptized. Disciple makers, what they do is they walk people into their salvation. Listen, this is all what it means, baptizing them. And immediately you help them make their faith public through baptism. You help make their faith public with their friends. You give them the boldness. You come around them to teach them to have the courage to talk to their friends about what Jesus Christ has done for them. It means to confirm 
and cement their new identity. Listen, if you're going to be baptizing people, what you're doing is you're coming around them saying, listen, do you know who you are in Christ? You are a brand new creation. Let me tell you what the Word of God says. That's all baptizing. And then teaching. It's the third one. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Listen to some sobering statistics on morality and lifestyle similarities. Now, this is between Christians and non-Christians, okay? Just listen to these. The percentages of men who view pornography in the church, or rather who claim to be Christians, is roughly the same as those who claim to be unbelievers. And it's not just men. Christians are considered now to be more than two times as likely to have racist attitudes. Did you know that? How could you possibly, how could any of us possibly look at somebody that is different than us, whom God has created, with anything less than love? It's abhorrent to God. Domestic violence, drug and alcohol abuse are just as prevalent with Christians as it is in non-Christians. One in four people who call themselves an evangelical Christian live together outside of marriage. Can you imagine what the world is saying when they look at us? You're not any different. Why do I want this Christ thing? Only 6% of evangelicals actually give to their church. Only 50% of those who attend church, who say that they attend church, actually do. In other words, only half the people in this statistical poll that say that they go, to, they have a church and they attend it actually do. 60 to 80% of young people will leave their church in their 20s. I mean, come on, friends. Clearly, we need to recover the example of Jesus. These people haven't been discipled. They need to be discipled. We've got to disciple them. We've got to teach them the way that Jesus can help us to live. It's the way that the Jews have been doing it for centuries. See, when a Jew would become a disciple, I want you to think about this. When a Jew would become a disciple, he would actually often live with the rabbi. And he would learn then how to live life with his rabbi right there. Because discipleship was always viewed by the Jews as duplicating the rabbi's life into the disciples. And that's exactly what this is. It would make the pupil think and speak and act like the rabbi. And the way Jesus and the Jews made disciples, was they, they would use every opportunity to teach in the context of relationship. Listen, you got to love If you're not a very loving person, you'll never be a good disciple maker. They don't just cram information into the heads of their disciples. That's the way the modern church tends to do it. But that's not the way discipleship was taught. But to, look what it says, to observe all that I have commanded you. The word observe means to watch, to guard a prisoner like a warden. In other words, you've got to pay very close attention. So pay very close attention to everything that I have commanded you, Jesus says. Well, listen, that means you've got to live with him. You've got to be with him. You've got to pray with, pray to him. You've got to be in the word, knowing him. Let the word get into you. 
Well, we met the CEO, we've seen the job, and we've understood our job responsibilities, but I can't leave you unless we get to the end of the verse and look at the promise that is ahead of us. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Man, I love that verse. My favorite verse in that passage. Our Lord has given us a job he will help us do. Did you see, did you, do you see this? Jesus has given us a job that he says, I'm going to help you do. He's going to be right there with you. You go out, you start saying, okay, Lord, it's a command. It's not an option. It's not a request. I got to make disciples who know how to make disciples. I got to baptize them. I got to get moving, but I got to baptize them and I got to teach them. And man, I don't, I'm kind of an introverted person. I'm, I'm young. I'll do this when I get older. And all of a sudden the words of Jesus come like a 10 ton weight on your soul. You got to do it now. You got to do it now. But you'd never have to do it alone. He might not always be willing to participate in a building program. I know church building programs that God was not in it. Or maybe not even participate in a capital campaign. Or one of those planned revival meetings. You know, the weekend that you tell God to show up in the Holy Spirit. He may not always participate in that. But one thing that he will definitely partner with is a Christian who's living out his mission or her mission of disciple making. That is a promise from God. And he will always be willing to partner with the mission of the gospel. And that mission will endure, look what the Bible says in that passage, to the end of the age. That's the indestructibility of the gospel. See, making mature disciples will not end, will never end on this earth, not until the end of the age when he comes again. And every Christian, friends, listen, every Christian has the same mission to make disciples, we got to go, we got to baptize them, we got to teach them all of what God says through Jesus in his gloriously perfect word. You know what, I could track my spiritual salvation to a lowly little Sunday school teacher named Edward Kimball. See, Kimball lived way long time ago, back when D.L. Moody was a little 17-year-old teenager. You know, Dwight Moody, that great evangelist. Kimball was a Sunday school teacher, and Moody was one of his students. But Moody and some of the other students didn't really act like they really wanted to be there, and they didn't really act like they loved Jesus. So Edward Kimball said, I got to go out. I got to get going to my students. I can't wait for them to keep coming to me. So he goes to Moody's place where he works. He worked in a shoe shop, restocking shelves. He was scared to death. And he left thinking that he botched the opportunity, but he, the best he could, he told D.L. Moody, 17 years old, what Jesus had done for him and said, Moody, you need to come to Jesus. Well, later that day, Moody, from that conversation, did indeed come to Jesus, became a believer, and God called him to become one of the most prominent evangelists in America. Now, listen to this. He traveled to Liverpool, England where he preached in F.B. Myers' church. F.B. Myers is one of the uh, class of the intellectuals, the intellectuals in England and the country church pastors. 
Spurgeon was considered a country pastor. Meyer was considered an intellectual. Very, very high theology. Listen to his sermon. You're not going to understand half of what he's going to say. And he looked down at Moody because Moody's from Chicago. He didn't have training. He was just rough. Just said it what it was. Just said it like it was. Very unsophisticated preaching. But eventually, Meyer, sitting under Moody's preaching, was himself transformed. And he began to work with Moody. And Moody said, hey, come on over to America. I want you to speak to Americans. And so he goes over to America to preach. And he preached at Northfield Bible Conference. And he challenged the crowds with this quote. If you are not willing to give up everything for Christ, are you willing to be made willing? That was F.B. Meyer. And in that audience, a struggling young minister by the name of Wilbur Chapman heard him say that, was changed by that prayer. He began to pray, Lord, make me willing. And God used Wilbur Chapman to become a powerful traveling evangelist. And under Chapman's mentoring, there was a professional baseball player by the name of Billy Sunday who soon quit baseball to take up preaching. And he began to dynamically, probably the most dynamic preacher America's ever seen, began to dynamically lead thousands of people to Christ. And in North Carolina, where he would preach, in response to his preaching, there was a group that started praying for revival. And they invited this guy named Mordecai Ham. Now, this group started under the ministry of Billy Sunday, but they invited Mordecai Ham to come preach in a crusade. And when he was preaching, there was a very young Central High School student who came to the crusade, didn't really want to, he was curious about it, sat in the back, except one of the ushers grabbed him and his friend and said, hey, I got a seat for you. And he put him right behind Mordecai Ham in the choir. It was there that Jesus Christ drew that young man whose name is Billy Graham to salvation. And it was in Syracuse, New York, at a Billy Graham crusade that my father, Robert Ackley, went forward to put his faith in Jesus Christ. And I am so thankful for Edward Kimball. Because he started it all. A little known Sunday school teacher who took the commission of Jesus Christ seriously to go and make disciples. And look at the millions of people who have come to know Jesus because of that simple obedience. Can you be obedient? Are you willing? Can you pray that God will make you willing if you're not? Are you a mule Christian? Is your end coming when you die? Or are you going to have a legacy of person after person that you have discipled and taught and baptized. Why? Because you went with the good news of the gospel. That's the church we've got to be. And that will get around the world. And one day you will meet the people in heaven and you will praise Jesus with them. Amen?